Good morning. Our reading today comes from John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the corn, coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you give us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. The Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a privilege to be here this morning. Uh, we have seen in the last few days faces of people who we know and love, and uh, we have, we've, they've just meant so much to us over the years, and it, it, we just feel honored to be here today. Uh, those at the meet and greet got to know my family a little bit, and we shared a little bit about ourselves, but there is one thing that I kind of held back, uh, one thing that I feel obligated to share, but it's made me a little nervous, and I, I don't know, maybe it's a deal breaker from, for some of you, and I'm afraid it's going to sound a little strange, but I'm just going to, I'm just going to get it out there. And uh, I am from the future. Uh, I, I know it sounds strange. I, I, I know it's a funny thing to say, and it, it seems unbelievable, but I'm not here to make absurd claims this morning. I, I know it sounds like science fiction, but I'm sharing theological fact. I am from the future, and it's not a big ruse, and I'm not leading you on. I'm from the future. Now, I want to explain this to you, but to explain it, we have to back way up before the story that we read today and, and go all of the way to the beginning. We'll never understand the future if we don't first understand the past, and so we're going to move kind of fast today. We have a lot of ground to cover. This is like a whirlwind tour through Scripture. But I think that we'll be rewarded by the end of our time together with a greater understanding of what it means to be God's people as individuals and as a church. So Genesis 1 opens with the words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and it goes on to tell how he did it, how, how he redeemed the chaos of creation and brought it to order. And the seven stages of creation in Genesis 1 are later mirrored in Exodus 25 through 31 when God gives instructions to his people to build a tabernacle, a portable temple for him in which his glory will reside and in, in, in which he will dwell. And the consecration period for that temple was seven days. Now, we read scripture 
in the ways that we are conditioned to read Scripture. Our 21st century American minds often want to read this passage through the lens of our world of science. But an ancient Jewish mind would have seen things in this passage that maybe aren't so readily visible to us. They would have seen Genesis 1 and recognized that God was doing more than creating the earth. God was building for himself a temple. The last thing that gets placed in a temple is the image of the God who is to be worshipped. And the last thing God places in his creation temple is humankind created in God's own image and designed to be reflections of his goodness. In this case, the image of the God that was in the temple was humanity. This is what it means for us to be created in the image of God. And in Genesis 2.8, it says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the humankind he had formed. Now, in other ancient Near Eastern religions, there were thought to be two very separate spheres of existence. There was the heavens that were above and the earth that was below. And in the heavens above, the gods did the things that the gods do. They bickered and they fought and they argued with one another. And in the earth below, people did the things that people do and they bickered and they fought and and they argued with one another. And occasionally, the gods would interact with humankind with a blessing or with a curse, but those two realms were separate. And what we read in, in Genesis 2 It's about this place called Eden. And Eden is unique because Eden is a place where those two realms intersect and heaven and earth collide in this garden. Heaven and earth are both present in Eden. So God and his image bearers are both living in this, both present in this overlap of heaven and earth with Eden functioning as the holy of holies in God's creation temple. And the image bearers of God are doing the work of the temple. We're naming the animals and tending to the garden and participants in God's temple. This is is worship. We're doing the work of worship. This is what we were created for. The phrase I like to use to describe our created purpose is our human vocation. This is the job we were created to do. We were made to worship. That is our most important job, to be reflections of our creator into the world to say this is who God is and to articulate the worship of our creator as it arises from every tree and stone and living creature. But if you know the story, you know what happens next. Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden. They sinned against God, and God, rather than destroying them, restored them. He clothed them. He he gave them ways to remain in relationship with them. He retained their created purpose, their human vocation. They are still to be worshipers. All throughout the scriptures, we see patterns of God's redemptive hand. From the clothing of Adam and Eve to the providing a new name for that cowardly heel grabber, Jacob, now Israel, we see it in, in those who worship God as Joseph brings restoration and redemption to his brothers. All stories of God's patterns of redemption in the world. But when we hit Exodus, we find that that human vocation is in jeopardy. Humankind is enslaving one another out of of fear, out of a desire for immortality, out of a craving for wealth. The Egyptians have enslaved the Israelites, but in doing so, they've also enslaved themselves to, to corrupt and broken systems. But God, the Redeemer, 
can bring restoration. Moses stands before Pharaoh. And in Exodus chapter 7, verse 16, God tells Moses, Then say to Pharaoh, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go, so that they may worship me in the wilderness. Let them go so that they can worship me in the wilderness. The, the deliverance that God was bringing was so that they could reclaim their human vocation. The people are delivered from Egypt to the wilderness so they could worship God with their lives. And in, it's in the wilderness that we arrive at a kind of climax in the story. And the story uh, turns and, and God begins to give the people instructions for how to build a tabernacle, a new way that God is going to interact with them. The God who once walked in the Garden of Eden intends to move back among his people, and he instructs them on how to build this sacred space, which is at once a model of creation as well as modeled after creation, and, and which provides a foretaste of what God is ultimately doing. It points us all of the way to the end of the story a hint at the new creation God is bringing, which he brings through Jesus, and through the Holy Spirit, and through his people. But for now, this is a signpost. This tabernacle is a signpost which, point, which points to all that God is going to do. Despite all of the obstacles and the disobedience and the pain that will come through the story, God is returning. And the tabernacle then it becomes a, a miniature model of a new creation. This is what the end of the story looks like the fully realized kingdom of God in which God dwells together with his people. It's the fulfillment of the prayer of Jesus when he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The rule and reign of God have moved from heaven to earth as those two realms, heaven and earth, collide into each other and become one. And in which the overlap in heaven, of heaven and earth take place not only in the tabernacle, but throughout all of creation. Now the tabernacle continues through the acquisition of the promised land, and eventually Israel has land and, and homes and kings and wealth, and David, King David, wishes to build God a temple. Why should I live in a palace while God is living in a tent? That doesn't seem right, but David's plan doesn't match God's plan. God said to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11 through 16, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and, the rest, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands, but my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, who I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, there's some clever language going on here. Rather than David building God a house, God will build David a house, a, a lineage that endures, a line of kings that endure. But it's more than clever language because this language recognizes that the temple itself is not divine. It's merely another signpost of what is to come. 
like the tabernacle points ahead of itself, so does the temple. The house that God is going to build is a temple that comes in the flesh. It's a new king, king over all of creation, creator of all things. God is going to establish a new temple in the line of David once when King Solomon builds that physical building, but most importantly, with the arrival of Jesus. If the temple is the place where heaven and earth overlap, then the presence of Jesus on earth becomes a living temple. Eventually, David's son Solomon builds the temple, and it's, it's a highly important moment in Scripture because even though it isn't the end game, it is the place where, once again, heaven and earth meet and God is present with his people. But while the glory of God has returned to earth through this dwelling place in the temple, meanwhile, humanity is in a state of rebellion. Israel's kings are unjust. Solomon re-enslaves his people and rebels against the ways of God. And the nation of Israel crumbles until it reaches a place of defeat, first dividing among itself as the northern tribes form the northern nation of Israel and the southern tribes form the kingdom of, of Judah, retain the, the city of Jerusalem and the temple and eventually, the northern kingdom is overthrown by the Assyrians, the southern kingdom by the Babylonians who destroy the temple, exile the people from their homes. And it isn't until 70 years later that the Persians show up and allow the Jewish people to return to their homes. And they arrive and they find everything in disarray. Nothing as, is as it was. Homes are destroyed, fields are destroyed, and most devastating of all, the temple is destroyed. And they fail to prioritize the rebuilding of the temple the way they first built it. They have so much to do, homes to rebuild, fields to replant, and the temple takes a back seat. But eventually it gets built, and it begins what's known as the second temple period, but the new temple is not the same. The prophets lament this truth. The temple is not like the last one. It's inferior in such important ways. Its construction is wrong. Its furnishings are wrong. But most importantly, the glory of God is absent from this temple. In the first temple, the glory of God descended like a cloud upon the temple, the way he did upon the tabernacle in the wilderness. But there was no cloud described in the completion of the second temple. The glory of God, many believed, was absent from this temple. And that sense of loss, the, the agony uh, of the absence of God basically endures through our Old Testament. But when we arrive in the New Testament, we begin to see that the Creator God is still redeeming the chaos. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 say, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the beginning, Jesus was there, redeeming the chaos, one with God, God with his people, God on earth. By the time we arrive in the New Testament, 
God's people have long awaited a Messiah, one who would bring redemption from all of the brokenness that was around them. Many had anticipated a Messiah who would lead them in rebellion against the forces of their day, who would inspire a revolt against Rome as the the Jewish people rose up and reclaimed what they believed was theirs. They dreamed of the restoration of of Judah, the, the restoration of the power of Jerusalem and the authority of the temple. They dreamed of a Messiah who would conquer their oppressors. But Jesus was a very different kind of a Messiah. The story wasn't ever about how the Messiah would come and restore Israel to its glory. It was always about how God would come to his people and restore us to our created purpose, our human vocation. Along the way, we've gotten signposts tabernacle, the the temple, God is with his people, and Jesus is the reality that all of these signposts have always pointed to, because not only does the arrival of Jesus mark a powerful overlap of heaven and earth, but in Jesus, the human vocation is fulfilled. Jesus is God in the flesh. The human vocation is fulfilled not because Jesus is God in the flesh. It's not because of his divinity. It's because he is God in the flesh. It's because of his humanity. Jesus comes to show us what it means to be truly human. To be truly human is to be living, breathing reflections of the God of heaven and earth, which means that you and I and all of us who are in Christ become a living space where heaven and earth overlap. To be truly human means that we find our freedom not in having power over others. That's how many imagined the reign of the Messiah. No, to be truly human means that we find our freedom in living according to that created purpose. We were made to worship. We were made to be gardeners. I've watched as this church has journeyed through Lent with the sacred invitation devotional. Carmen and I are going through that as well, and it's, it's been wonderful. And I, I've talked with the pastoral team here, and they told me that this week was about abundant freedom and the abundant freedom that we find in Christ. Somehow, we often have the twisted notion that freedom must have a human cost, meaning that my freedom has to come at someone else's expense, and their freedom is necessarily a threat to my freedom. To have freedom, the world believes, you have to have power, and power is a finite substance. There's only so much of it. Either I have power or you have power, but we can't both have power. Either Rome has power or Jerusalem has power, but they can't both have power, and there is no freedom to be found among God's people if someone else has power. So but the belief that a Messiah would overthrow Rome made perfect sense. We have to get our power back. But the problem is that power did not provide freedom at all. And we see it clearly in the passage that we started with today in which Jesus is clearing the temple. Jesus entered the temple and he found that this sacred space, this space that was to be devoted to the overlap of heaven and earth, had turned into a marketplace of religious commerce. The forgiveness of sins could be purchased for the price of a sheep or a goat conveniently sacrificed by a highly trained temple staff. And if you were a person of wealth, it was good news for you. The scales were in your favor at the expense of the poor. 
And Jesus entered this religious marketplace, this abomination to the Jewish faith, and he drove out the animals with a whip of cords, and and he overturned the tables of the money changers who preyed on those who had made pilgrimages to the temple, this place that was supposed to be devoted to faith and to prayer and repentance and restoration and seeking out God had been turned into a vulture's market, this place where heaven and earth were supposed to overlap, was being used for religious exploitation. And a place where people were intended to find freedom was being used to oppress. Some exercised power over others unfairly and unjustly. And so when Jesus enters it, Jesus who is not only the fleshly embodiment of the overlap of heaven and earth, but also the only source of true freedom, he clears the temple of its injustice and its oppression because that's not what a temple of God was ever intended to be. And it's not, and what the temple had become was not compatible with the reality that Jesus was bringing. What did Jesus say to the crowd? Tear this temple down, and in three days I will rebuild it. The temple is Jesus. Jesus is the overlap of heaven and earth. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus gives us additional signposts of what is to come. The healings, the turning water into wine, the recovery of sight to the blind, the forgiveness of sinners, and so on. All of these signposts of the coming kingdom, always of saying, this is how reality works when heaven and earth collide. When Jesus touched the lepers and healed them, he was bringing the ways of heaven to earth. When he healed the woman with the issue of blood, he was reordering the earth according to the ways of heaven. When he raised the dead to life, he was reordering the earth according to the ways of the kingdom of God. But like we always have from the garden to the nation of Israel to the cross, humankind rebelled against the presence of God among us. They crucified Jesus. I know this peaks ahead of where we are right now. We are in the season of Lent and it's important when we're in Lent that we rest there and that we, we remember from dust we came and to dust we will return. We wrestle with our, our own mortality. Uh, but if, if you'll just in, indulge me this morning to peek a little bit ahead at Easter and Pentecost, as we know that Jesus conquers death and he returns breaking death's power, ripping the temple curtain, which clearly says God will not be contained And he eventually ascends into heaven with the promise the Holy Spirit will come. And beginning in Acts, we see the temple of God return in two powerful ways. First, as the Holy Spirit enters into the hearts of all who are baptized in Christ, and we become living temples in whom God powerfully dwells. Just as a temple was a miniature model of a new creation, so are we. How awesome is that? And second, we see the temple of God returning in the form of his church as our gatherings become enacted prototypes of the new creation. The Holy Spirit continues the work of of God in Jesus by being the presence of God on earth, pointing to the ultimate fulfillment of all things. When God returns in full, king over all creation and heaven and earth are finally and fully reunited. And we live under the authority of our creator, our creator king in a garden city that scripture calls the new Jerusalem. It's the new Eden, which brings me back to where we started this morning. 
And that strange, odd claim that I made in my opening words, I am from the future. And it's absolutely true, and so are you. You see, we know where all this is going. We know what it means to worship Christ as king. The world does not see it yet, but we do. We know that Jesus is king. We know that all things are being restored in him, and we know it because we have tasted it ourselves. Our lives are being restored in him. Think of the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Lord, you are holy, and we worship your holiness when we speak your name. And he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, bring the order of heaven, the unbroken order of heaven to our broken earth and make our earth function like your heaven functions. And then he says, give us this day our daily bread. N.T. Wright and other scholars have pointed to this line, give us this day our daily bread. And they've pointed out that there's actually another way of translating it that works just as well in the Greek. Give us today the bread of tomorrow. Let us indulge in tomorrow's gifts today. Let us feast on kingdom bread now. Let us celebrate the union of bride and bridegroom here and now. We are living embodiments of where this is all going. We are from the future. We eat the bread of the future, and we get to say to the world, this is what a future in Christ looks like. And it's good news. We are from the future when we lean into the realities of tomorrow, today, and live according to the powerful truth of the kingdom of God. When we partner with God to enact justice and to bring healing and to participate in his work of redemption. Venture Ministries, that is a future ministry. We are living temples in which the Holy Spirit dwells and through which heaven and earth intersect. God lives in us. And so we become restored restorers. As God is doing his work of restoration in us, so he uses us to bring restoration to a broken world. We become redeemed redeemers and healed healers and sanctified sanctifiers of creation so that the world can encounter the intersection of heaven and earth through us and know the abundant freedom that is only found in God. Because we've discovered that freedom is not found in naming enemies or identifying some as unholy or impure or gaining power or the upper hand, but in the healing of broken relationships, in the forgiveness of sins, in the restoration of those whose lives are broken as they surrender that brokenness and find restoration and healing in Jesus. And it's through the Spirit of God who lives in the followers of Jesus that we are called to hold the world to account by caring for the poor by loving our neighbors and by enacting justice and by reminding the powers of the world that it is their God-given vocation to bring God's order to the world. Our lives as they are being conformed to Jesus by the power of his Holy Spirit are a signpost of all that God is doing in this world. And the church, the gathering of those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, becomes a powerful signpost of the world that is to come. Years ago, I had uh, the privilege of serving on this church's staff 
And as a pastor, I'm certain that I, I learned more than I could have ever taught here. Uh, I experienced tremendous growth here. I, I grew as a, as a person and as a pastor here. We planted and established the, the center church in Lakeville, and God did so much more than plant a church. He used this church, and so many of you, God, God used many of you to impact my life and Carmen's life. And I believe that this church is a signpost to the world, to Henrietta, New York, of what God is doing in all creation. I believe it because I have, I have seen it. I, I've seen the restoration that occurs in the ministries of this church. I've seen the healing that takes place in, in lives. I've experienced the growth that happens here firsthand. And I've seen God use Calvary Community Church of the Nazarene as a signpost pointing to the new creation. I haven't only seen it, I've experienced it. I grew so much while I was here, and that, that makes it such a privilege to be here again with you today. And I trust in the plans that God has for this church, independent of, of who your next pastor is, that he will continue to use Calvary Community Church of the Nazarene as a signpost that points to the kingdom of God, that lives will continue to be transformed, hearts will continue to be discipled, and that the living temples of this church, in whom God's spirit dwells, will continue to participate in the work of the kingdom of God. It's a tremendous blessing to be here with you all today, and I thank you for this opportunity. Let's bow our heads in prayer together. Holy Lord, we give you praise this morning as we are reminded what it means to be baptized in Christ, to be filled with your spirit, to be living temples of the living God. Father, we, we recognize that the future is yours, and we pray that our presence today would make the present day more like your future. Give us today the bread of tomorrow, we pray. Let us indulge in the gifts of your kingdom today. Let us share the truth and the realities of your kingdom with our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our family. Use us, Lord, as redeemed redeemers. Use us as healed healers. As you restore our lives, use us to bring restoration to your creation. And remind us, Father, that our freedom is found in you. Our freedom is found in leaning into our human vocation. We were made to worship, and so let us worship with our lives, with our words, with our love for you and for others. We give you praise this morning, Father. And we pray all of these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.